Okay. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Entitled Art Podcast, recorded live on a 12th edition of Entitled Art here in Miami Beach. My name is Anichka, and I work in exhibitor services and communications. I am pretty honored to be introducing this podcast titled Forging New Paths in an Evolving Art World because Maria Vogel is one of our Entitled Art Ambassadors. Her experience in the art world covers almost every corner, from blue chip and emerging galleries to institutions and startups. In addition to writing for some of the art world's top publications, she is the founder of Rococo, an advisory that looks beyond transactions to emphasize storytelling and interconnectedness. Thank you, for Maria, for being here today and for your ongoing support and collaboration. You have organized such an exciting discussion today between you and these three influential women. So without further ado, I will pass the mic to you to further introduce us to our panelists. Thank you, Anichka. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here. Um, today's really exciting because the women I have beside me are colleagues. They are people I admire so much in the art world and they're my friends. Um, so it's a beautiful synchronicity of kind of all of our various walks of life. And um, I'm so excited to speak with them here today and thrilled to make this all happen and have you here. Um, that was a beautiful introduction, but just to add to it a little bit um, and to reintroduce myself, I'm Maria. I am the founder of Rococo Art Advisory, um, an art advisory that does all of the kind of traditional functions an art advisory does between supporting collectors in acquiring artworks, um, working with incredible artists to get their artworks into beautiful homes, um, and also creating programs and moments for people to connect uh, over those artists. So I host a suite of programs from gallery walkthroughs uh, to group studio visits in artist studios. Um, to a dinner party series entitled Roco Cinco, um, really just to bring people together around the artists that I love and admire and want to create further connection with. Um, I'm going to let these women introduce themselves um, in more detail, but uh, just real quick, beside me is Jordan Hulskamp, um, founder of Salon and head of curatorial at Artsy. Hannah Gottlieb Graham is next to her. Uh, founder of Alma Communications, and Charlie Jarvis at the end, uh, founder of Fairchain. So if you ladies just want to quickly introduce yourself and um, your companies. Everyone here is a female founder, um, and we're all working in various lanes. So um, yeah, just speak a little bit to what each of your endeavors uh, compromises. That would be great. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having us, Maria and Untitled. My name is Jordan Hulskamp. I am the curatorial lead at Artsy, which is the leading platform online for buying and selling art. My job at Artsy involves collecting the right collectors with the right artworks and supporting our gallery partners from all over the world. I'm also the founder of Salon. Salon is a member-managed art fund. Together, we'll, we're building a communally owned and geographically dispersed art collection in community with a group of visionary private collectors. Hello, thank you for being here. Um, my name is Hannah Gottlieb Graham. I'm the founder of Alma. Um, we're a PR agency operating at the intersection of contemporary art and social change. Um, and I have an all-female team of seven, and we work with a mix of artists, galleries, museums, nonprofits. We do some book projects. Um, so that's what I do. Hi, everyone. I'm Charlie Jarvis. I'm the founder of Fairchain. 
and Fairchain is ownership infrastructure for the fine art market. We allow artists and galleries to manage um, digital certificates of title of their works and stay connected to their works as they move through the market, establishing resale royalties and clear provenance. So with this panel, we really wanted to kind of, uh, we'll do a few things, talk about what each of us are doing and how we got to those various um, places. Uh, we all share taking kind of a, a non-traditional, non-linear path to get to where we are. So we're going to talk about what that has looked like throughout our careers thus far um, and kind of the journeys that took us here. Um, we also want to be like really transparent and break down any um, facade of, you know, just ending up here with companies and it being like this glamorous, easy, um, you know, stress-free process. So we're going to touch on kind of questions in all of those realms. Um, but I'll start it off with, um, Charlie, maybe you can start with this question. Um, and then we can go down to Hannah and Jordan. When did you realize that there was an opportunity to fill a gap the art world was missing with your mission? That's a great question. Um, so for background, I founded Fairchain right out of college. Um, and while I was in school, I was studying computer science and taking a bunch of art classes. And I had never really understood, or I'd never really been immersed in the art market. It was pretty foreign to me. But I had started to notice that there were a lot of works going up at auction for very high prices. Um, and I was really impressed by the fact that there was this moment in which a lot of these uh, works going up at high prices were actually by artists of color. Um, what I didn't know and what I was really shocked to find out was that uh, the majority of the time when a work goes up at auction, the artist actually um, gets nothing from that sale, right? So there are infamous cases of artists who sold works for $30,000, they get $15,000 after splitting with the gallery. And if that same work goes up at auction for $3 million, um, they, they don't get anything from that. Um, and to me, uh, kind of seeing this new attention focus on artists of color and female artists, but then also noticing that um, there weren't necessarily uh, structures financially or otherwise to really protect these artists who were newly gaining attention. Um, it was kind of the moment that I thought, uh, okay, there might be an opportunity to solve this. And I know that there's a lot possible from a technical side of things. And this is a problem that I would really like to kind of spend time on fixing. I think um, for me, the realization that my business was filling a gap that didn't already exist in our industry sort of came, like that wasn't the, um, the premise of me founding my company. It wasn't the thing that was driving and motivating and that's boom, there's something that's missing and now I'm going to create this and let's see how it goes. It kind of happened to me organically amidst the, um, the foundation of Alma in my first year with my first client. I used to be a writer and have a background in writing and editing and for a long time thought I wanted to go down that path professionally and then ended up pivoting to PR um, really from a love of writing and storytelling and um, kind of creating new models and narratives of telling stories. And I had many, many different careers and jobs and communications and PR over the years and agencies and house 
and then had an experience working with Antoine Sargent, who's my founding client um, at my former role, the Aperture Foundation, where I was a comms director. And we just became incredibly close and collaborated on his project, The New Black Vanguard. And I think it shifted something in my being and in my body and my psyche. And it really inspired me to do something fresh and new. So I quit my job, had no business plan and started Alma. And it was really me and Antoine just kind of figuring things out as we went along. Um, and in the first year, I really treated it as a proof of concept and just decided to take on as many incredible projects as I could and really, really lean in. So that first year was a really pivotal moment of um, saying yes to a lot of things and making a ton of mistakes and figuring out where my interests lied and, you know, what my niche was going to be. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people have like a really fantastic idea that sparks a business and then boom, you start. And then for others, you might have a sense of what you want to do and then it kind of changes and molds along the way. So for me, it was the latter. Um, and that first couple months, that first year was a really pivotal moment for me to realize that what I was doing, which is working so closely with my clients and thinking about communications really holistically and really differently and taking on projects that um, really foreground and focus mission is something that was fresh and is new and didn't exist. So it, I don't want to say it happened by accident because I think it's very core to my being and who I am as a person, but it happened very organically in my first year. I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I grew up in California, I went to school in the Silicon Valley and did all my internships in big tech and was very, very inspired by people who started their own companies and always aspired to do that. And I had this naive idea when I first started working that one day a great idea would just drop from the sky and, and hit me in the head and I'd do it. And what I didn't know at that time was that that's not how it works. You really have to be very, very deeply involved in an industry, learning so much and constantly looking for opportunities in that industry. And that's really where you're well positioned. You can see something that doesn't exist. There's a product market fit. There's something that the market needs. Um, and with my background at Artsy, I'm always thinking about art and technology and how those two things intersect. And in 2021, when the crypto uh, community really started rising to the fore and we had um, some of the first very large NFT sales come up in the art market at these big, you know, traditional fine art, fine art auction houses, I really started paying attention and I wanted to learn as much as I could about these new models of collective ownership and what these people online were doing to organize themselves and transact with total strangers. And we started to see these really interesting communities forming around digital art. So people actually coming together online with people they didn't know, pooling their funds and then buying digital artwork together. And I thought that was so rad because, um, you know, in the art world, we don't really have models of collective ownership. When you think about like a public institution, something that's communally owned, the only thing we kind of had was we have as museums, but as we know, museums have a lot of bureaucratic interests and um, they have powerful people who are, who are making, you know, making their mark on what actually does get acquired. And I thought these new models that were being birthed from the crypto community were very, very cool. My background is, of course, in fine art. So I started asking those questions. How do we bring this model to fine art? How do we do this? Can we get a community of private collectors to come together, pool money, and then start building a collection together. And what happens to that art? Where do we put it? Can we put it in their homes? Can we do this, can we do this compliantly? Can we do this you know, in total compliance with the SEC? What, what does regulation look like? So all of these questions, huge questions, um, started dominating my thoughts. And as all three of you know, 
when there's an idea you can't shake, you just, it just it, for me, it became all consuming. I had to find out these answers and I had to birth salon. <laughs> there's no other option for me. Um, yeah, and that's how it happened. And I'll just add for myself, um, I had seen so many different types of people operate, you know, as an advisor, I, I've created a lot more, I think, than just uh, advising, which is in essence sales. But at the core, um, you know, how I earn my living is helping to sell art. And I had seen so many other people in the art world um, in sales-focused positions that felt so disconnected from the artists and the artwork, um, just really working with something that felt like it could be any commodity, any product. Um, and that was true of, you know, advisors I had witnessed, I had seen how they were kind of operating around the industry and, you know, not to go against anyone's kind of way of operating. That's not my point here. But I just felt like there was an opportunity to really wear the advising hat in a way where I was walking the walk of looking out for the artists that I was placing in homes and, um, really leading with that um, versus trying to make a sale and trying to make, you know, a buck. Um, so that philosophy has driven me throughout all of my years of advising and founding Rococo just a little over a year ago in a very formal way. Um, and, you know, that, that's kind of what I saw as the gap that was missing um, between what I could provide as, a, as an advisor. There's a lot of advisors out there. Um, and, you know, I really had to think of if I'm going to step into this in a big way, how can I do it in a way that feels a little different? Um, so that's what, uh, Rococo was born out of. Um, Hannah, I have a question for you. Were you shown examples of self-starters or entrepreneurs in your life growing up that helped you maybe to kind of visualize yourself in those shoes one day? Yes, absolutely. Um, my parents, I think, are the biggest inspirations for me, for sure. And um, my mom, specifically, my company Alma is named after her. It means soul in Portuguese. My mom is Brazilian. Um, and both my parents are not entrepreneurs by any means, but they're, um, you know, I think they have very entrepreneurial spirits in many ways. They're creatives, they're artists, they're professors, they're academics. My mother is a cultural anthropologist um, studying Latin American studies and women's studies. And my dad is a poet. He dabbled in painting a little bit and mostly writes novels now. And um, growing up in Chicago and in a really creative environment and community filled with artists and love and life and vision. And, um, you know, I think the kind of life that my folks provided for me was one of the arts and one of the mind in many ways. And they gave me a ton of artistic freedom and freedom of expression, a lot of confidence. I think my mom for sure gave me an example of, you know, a woman who came to this country and was going to make it like there was no other option. And she instilled a real, both my parents, but I think specifically my mom, a real sense of drive, purpose and work ethic in me. Um, I'm a very hard worker. Both my parents are. My dad's 72 and retired and, you know, he's writing six books right now. So that's the vibes. Um, and I think both of them have, um, have created an ecosystem that I've been able to model in my own personal and professional life that's really one of collaboration and community and generosity and spirit, 
They've always had a ton of people around them and um, really been helpers. You know, I think my parents are people who really lead with active service. And um, that's really what I do. My, my life is really about serving others and uplifting the voices of others and telling stories of others. And I think everything that I do is um, really because of them in many ways. Hannah and I talk about this a lot, um, that experience that she just described. And um, my experience growing up was a bit different. I, I had some entrepreneurs in my family, um, but I had various models of success and failure that I grew up witnessing. Um, so when I started, I, I did know um, when I started in the art world years and years ago that eventually I'd be doing my own thing. I didn't know what that thing was, but I always had that fire in me to go for it. Um, but, you know, when I sat down and, and started to formulate that into reality, I had so much fear and so much hesitation um, based on seeing family members, you know, go for it and, and it not always end up well. Um, so that's something that I've definitely kind of had to battle with and overcome. And it's, you know, it's one of those things that I don't think you just wake up one day and it's gone. It's kind of like, a something you practice for many years. But, um, you know, as I think a founder, um, there's this maybe expectation that that was something that was modeled to you, um, or a facade, um, that that's kind of the way you become someone like that. And that's definitely not my reality and something that I have had to contend with in a big way. So um, I use it as fuel for the fire. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's really, we all talk about, you know, our various paths of getting to where we got and they all look so different. So um, Charlie, what is the goal that you set yourself for yourself, excuse me, early on that you've been able to accomplish with Fairchain? That's a good question. Um, I think that when you start a company, the hardest part is the level of uncertainty and the high probability of failure. Um, if you were to go into building a business, um, I mean, my company is a venture-funded tech startup, and the probability of venture-funded tech startups succeeding is quite low, right? Even the venture model is based on the fact that you know, 99 out of 100 startups are going to fail and one's going to become a billion dollar company. So starting the company took a lot of just grappling with the reality of like, what happens if I put all this time into building this company and then it fails? Um, and in order to start the company, you have to be really comfortable with that scenario. So for me, I think along the way, I've set these goals, right? I, I thought it'd be really cool to raise you know, over a million dollars in venture funding. Okay, I thought it'd be really cool to raise over a million dollars in venture funding. I thought it would be amazing to get a press write-up in the New York Times. I thought it'd be really cool to... She um, did that, by the way. <laughs> that happened. We did. I did both of those things. <laughs> um, I thought it'd be really cool to build a team and um, learn about the different parts of the business. I think for me, I at the end of the day, like, there's the impact of what I want the business to accomplish, and there's the way that I keep myself pushing through failure and the possibility of failure, and I honestly find that while achieving a lot of these, like, goals is great, um, I've actually always grounded myself in both impact and learning, 
So I think my main goal throughout the whole process actually has been one, can I, can I achieve the impact I want, right? Can we create this better um, infrastructure and environment for artists to participate in the art market, whatever that means? Um, and then secondly, can I learn a lot along the way? Um, and that for me is how I make sure that I'm comfortable with this idea that something could fail, right? At every point in time, I look around and I think, okay, this is awesome. I'm doing something really hard. Maybe something's going wrong. But today I learned this thing that I, I wouldn't have been able to learn otherwise. And even just looking back on the four years of building this company, it's been amazing how much I've learned. And to me, that is kind of the greatest opportunity that I've put myself into these situations where day after day I have no clue what I'm doing and then I you know do a lot of researching I talk to a lot of people who know things and then the best feeling in the world is um, kind of coming back to this problem that I have a week later and feeling really smart on it in a way that I wasn't the week before um, so yeah I think that while it was it's really cool to have all of these like long-term goals that I would like to accomplish and a lot of them I have accomplished actually my largest goal is really just being able to learn how to create the impact and the type of business that I believe should exist in the world. I think your point about learning is such an important one because I feel like there's a really um, false perception around creating a business and learning and kind of getting to a place where, you know, you've had a career for X amount of years, you've learned everything that you need to learn, and then boom, I'm going to start a business and take all my learnings, and then here it is, you know, and the truth is, I think the reality for many founders is that every day is a tremendous learning experience and being a founder is one of the most humbling things that you can do. I think it takes so much humility and it's a challenging thing to be learning so constantly every second of every day and then kind of be at the top distilling your learnings down and figuring out how it is that um, you translate those learnings to make a better environment for your team or for yourself or for the business at large or for the people relying on you. And um, it's a lot of pressure, honestly, to learn so much and so quickly at a very rapid rate and then be the person who's also the visionary and the decision maker. And you have to take all those things and figure out, you know, they don't just exist in a vacuum. They have to move and the learnings need to, um, they need to become something, right? So I think that's a really important point. Yeah, I think your point on like all the little things we have to learn, there's so much unsexy stuff that comes with being an entrepreneur. And to your point on vision, you know, there is a tremendous amount of, um, not pressure, but there's expectations of founders. You're the one with the visionary ideas. You're the one who can make this happen. You had an idea nobody else had. But in reality, 85 to 90% of your day-to-day -day is like figuring out how to pay your taxes and how to keep people on your payroll and these little things that you, you just don't think about when you think about starting a business. And so it's also all about having that right combination of vision and risk and, you know, that verve that, you, that it takes to be an entrepreneur, but also being able to set yourself up for success operationally so that your business can run and you can do the most, you can spend the most time doing what you do best, which nobody else can do. Um, that's huge. And that was a great piece of advice I got early in my journey. Yeah, I think also just in this day and age, being such an image-based visual culture where, you know, people's um, every move on a day-to-day -day basis may or may not be shared on Instagram, social media. Um, you're not going to share the moments where you're sitting at your laptop and cranking out a spreadsheet or, you know, rushing to get something done. You're going to... So 
it's it's easy, I think, especially in this day and age, to have an idea of someone running a company, what their life looks like uh, when you see the events from the evening, uh, sorry, the photos from evening events or, uh, you know, moments outside of the very unsexy things. And you're like, oh, wow, must be great, must be easy. They look, you know, not totally run down. And um, so, yeah, that's, it's, it's funny what is happening behind the scenes in a very real way on a day-to-day basis. Wait, I love that. I have a funny anecdote. It's so important to stay humble. And the moment of my, when I launched Salon, Hannah was my publicist. And a couple weeks after we launched, I had my gorgeous spread, with my, my, all my headshots that I'd taken professionally. And it was awesome. And we had a piece in Cultured and it was so glam. But the moment I actually launched was a couple weeks earlier. It was three in the morning. My face is a glazed donut because I had all my skincare on. I had my retainers in. I had my blue light glasses on. My hair was on top of my head. I looked awful. I was crouching on my thing. With my, I looked like a gremlin. And that was the actual moment that I sent that first email inviting my community to join me in building this insane collection. But I took a selfie and I have it. And I referenced that moment because it's important to remember that that's what the real hard work looks like, not the accolades, not the ability to sit on a panel like this. Um, it's just being able to do that hard work uh, in unglamorous settings. I would, I would also add I had a similar moment in which I, I had a friend who was launching, um, launching a business actually last week, and it was the week before their launch, and I uh, came to the store that was about to open, and she was freaking out because she needed to get someone to do garbage disposal. And I was like, oh, I have a guy. I have a garbage disposal person. <laughs> and that was one of those moments where I was like, yes, as a founder, you learn absolutely everything. One of them being that I had to go to the store next to my office and figure out um, who would pick up the garbage for me. And every day there's kind of this, like, I mean, every week I kind of honestly take pride in the fact that, like, I'm the one in the company who goes and takes out the garbage every day um, because it, that's kind of the the kind of crux of being a founder, right? Like you're doing all of the unsexy stuff because this is how much the business matters to you, but you learn so much by having to be kind of like the most humbled person um, in the company. Let me get that guy's number. I can yeah. get him someday. If anyone's in New York, traveling from New York, we have a guy for you back, back home. Um, Jordan, what uh, was one unexpected challenge that came up uh, as you set out to build Salon? I'm sure so many because you were diving into, you know, really new age uh, kind of state of the art technologies and ways of operating um, that, you know, are so over my head. Um, yeah. The biggest challenge was the compliance. Actually, I was very fearful of the way that a lot of people were operating these new modes of collective ownership online. And those fears and hesitations turned out to be true. A lot of people were setting up businesses that look a little bit like mine that turned up to be fully out of compliance. And we've seen further legal precedents set and these people are in trouble. So <laughs> I am really thankful that I was a big worry wart when I set out to build this decentralized collection. So to kind of put the basics down, Salon is an art collection, fine art, it's located all over the world in the homes of our investors, um, and we all communally own the art. So we each own a vertical slice of our entire collection. Um, and how do you set that up? So I had to get a lot of, uh, I had I worked with a great legal team, 
Uh, we figured out how to do this in full compliance. We're structured pretty similar, similarly to a traditional fund, but there were a lot of hoops we had to jump over and we just had to be extremely careful because there was no way that I was going to invite people on this journey and, you know, a year later have my investors funds pulled out of the rug because we made an, we made an incorrect decision on setting up the fund. So um, that was a really That's important like, thing to get right. Talk about responsibility. Yeah. I mean, it's huge when you get, yeah. Charlie, you know, when you, when you have investors come in, they're putting a lot of faith in you and the funds land in your bank account and it is your responsibility. It's not just your money anymore. Um, and that was a huge amount of responsibility I continue to take very, very seriously. Um, and it's an honor. It's an honor when people believe in you and believe in the idea. And then, of course, a year and change later, we have a collection of six incredible works. Speaking of goals, one of my main goals was to collect something in the first year from one of the mega galleries. And we did that. Two, two of the megas believe in us and sold to us. Um, and yeah, it's all about that step-by-step overcoming those challenges, not getting paralyzed by them as they mount up and taking it day by day. Hannah, um, I'm curious if there was one thing you could change about the professional side of the art world, what would it be? Tough question. One thing. Um, no. You know, classism, racism, sexism, run of the gamut. Um, there, you know, I think the art world, I've been working in the art world for over 10 years now and I've seen... I've had many jobs. I've seen it from many vantage points, um, you know, from the media side as a writer, as an editor, as a publicist on the agency side. I've worked at nonprofits. I've worked in the gallery space. Now as a publicist, what's cool is I have the opportunity to work with so many different kinds of clients. So I feel like I'm constantly learning again, as we said, and challenging and testing my brain and figuring out what it is that an artist needs now, what a museum needs, what a gallery needs, what a nonprofit needs, what it looks like to be a gallery with six different locations and what those needs look like. So um, I have a very unique position, I think, now in perspective in that I get to work with so many different types of players. And I think the overall and underscoring issue of our industry is really the barriers to entry. Um, I think... I am somebody who had the enormous privilege of education. My parents, you know, both are immigrants, came to the States and invested every dime that they made into my own education. And that's 100% why I landed in the rooms and sitting at the tables that I got to. And I think there are many, um, many steps that I was able to take and many learnings that I was able to have that are rarities and really rare opportunities. So I'm always thinking about, um, I'm always thinking about that, you know, barrier to entry. There's so many internships. When I was in college, I think I had nine internships. You know, I went to school in New York City. I really dove in right after I graduated. I went to grad school. I had all these jobs. And just even that alone, I think I was set up for success in a way that is um, just not common, quite frankly. And I think our industry really relies on that and relies on somebody, you know, sending in their resume at 23 years old, already having 17 jobs the way that I did. And I know that that's a huge privilege of mine. Um, and I think a lot of industries struggle with this, but the art world and our industry specifically, for sure, no matter, you know, what, what piece you want. And even from the artist side now, like people look at CVs and, you know, you graduate from Yale School of Painting and they expect you to have 12,000 solo shows already. Like it's, it's really wild. So I think, um, I think also just 
giving folks the opportunity to have a little bit of fun and play and like be able to have some creative freedom to test things out and see where they want to land in their careers. There's so much expectation to succeed right away. I even see that now as a publicist. I feel like the kind of people who are in my inbox and think, oh, I need a publicist. And I'm like, you don't like just chill, like do the work, you know, have a couple great 10 years down the road and then we can chat. So I think we're in an era and in in an age now of extreme immediacy, you know, everybody wants everything right away fast. And I think our, our industry is one that really values that. And I'm a really fast person, but I also think, um, barriers to entry slowing down, it's going to alleviate a lot of the other issues around, you know, class race, you know, sexism, all the things that I brought up. I think it all stems, um, many of those issues stem from not allowing people to get their foot in the door. I think we all share an experience, you know, earlier on in our art world journeys um, where we probably felt, you know, stifled or like, is it ever going to be possible to keep climbing this, you know, hypothetical ladder and get to a place where we are today? I, I questioned being in the art world after I started in it early on. I was like, I don't know if this is the spot for me. These don't feel like my people. Um, based on the perspective I was given early on from, from a particular job. And so, yeah, it's an interesting thing to be a part of a world where we all have frustrations, you know, things we'd love to change. Um, but, you know, having the immense privilege of carving out our particular lanes and moving forward in a way that hopefully um, remedies a few of those things. Um, I am curious, what would you change? And I also want to hear from Charlie. Hannah kind of landed it for me as well. I think um, in addition to barriers to entry, I think the overall, I, I, I view few rooms where, you know, we're experiencing amazing art or not enough rooms, I should say. You're experiencing amazing art and you're feeling welcomed in and um, you feel like you can have a conversation with a stranger and connect over a thing. I think the spaces the art world has conceived feel sterile oftentimes. They feel intimidating. They feel unwelcoming. It feels like the artwork is, you know, reserved for the smallest amount of people to enjoy and connect with. Um, So I'm always trying to smile really big and, you know, bring more and more people in with whatever I'm doing um, just to you know, let other people know that you don't have to be born into an art world family or, you know, have a clue of what's going on to step in and, and start connecting. And cause that's how I started. I had no clue. And I dove in and I was like, damn, I might not have a clue for many years, but you know, stayed the course. And now I have a little bit of a clue. And, um, I just want more people to be able to, to do the same thing and to enjoy the art world and feel that they can connect with it, no matter if they're buying the art, if they are fans of, you know, whatever, however you want to show up and be a part of it, you should be able to. Um, so that's, that's the one thing that keeps me going, really. Um, Charlie, I'm curious, um, what is one piece of advice you would give to your younger self on the journey you've carved out? Okay, so when I was younger, I was very, very shy Um, and it was this constant kind of thing in my life where I constantly was like not doing things I really wanted to do because I was constantly not doing things I really wanted to do because I was very shy. 
Um, and I think that getting older and kind of growing outside of that, I make a very conscious uh, effort to like, when I think of an idea of something I want to do and I have the, um, I have, I, I'll have my first thought of like, this is really scary. Maybe I can't do it. And I have all this fear around it. And whenever I notice that, I kind of try really intentionally uh, to do that thing. And it could be something really small. Like last year, I, I had an idea that I wanted to run a marathon. And I decided like, this is a thing I am really afraid of doing. Maybe I can't do it. And so then I did it. Like four months later, I decided I was going to run the marathon. And I kind of think that that's... Uh, the thing that I did uh, within business, right? Like starting the business was really, really scary. And honestly, there are meetings I have just on a random Wednesday that are really, really scary. Um, and I try to make a really conscious effort to always do the thing that I'm afraid of or ask for the thing that I'm afraid of. Um, and that, I guess, would be my advice to my younger self, which is to, I mean, to have started doing that earlier and um, to have confidence that uh, it's worth kind of taking those risks and uh, trusting the outcome. I can fully attest to Charlie stepping into that in such a big way because the other night, you don't know this, we haven't discussed this, we were at the same event and we were both kind of waiting in line to get a drink and I heard behind me Charlie's voice going up to a stranger and saying like, hi, I like, you know, I like your outfit. I'm Charlie. What's your name? And I turned around and I was like, the confidence. I was like, I'm not talking to anyone tonight. And Charlie's going up, introducing herself to the part. I, I was like, so in awe of you, um, you know, standing there watching this moment happen. So you've, you've, you've done it. Um, I would also say that that is definitely something like I'm so shy, I guess, in my heart, but I actually am quite good at meeting people because um, another thing that I've learned and that I found is that people are so much nicer than you think they are and they're so much more willing to help than you think. And I have been so grateful for the people I've been able to rely on as resources um, and also just what it means to be a resource to other people. And so I think that like when you talk about like the fear or like the confidence that it takes to go up to people, that's been my biggest learning, right? Like great businesses are built based on the relationships that you have and uh, to kind of go against any fear you have on building those relationships is really important. I think also speaking of advice, when you start telling people your ideas for what you want to build, you get a lot of bad advice. You get a lot of people trying to tell you what you should do, what they think you should do. And at the end of the day, if you're an aspiring founder, you're building something, you are spending every single waking moment thinking about that thing. So it's important to take everything you hear with a grain of salt as well, especially in the early stages before you've launched. Because a lot of that kind of advice or that oh, do you think that's really going to work? Or how is that possible? It, it can get in your ear and you just got to get, get it out of your ears and you got to really trust yourself. Um, so that, that was an important piece of advice I learned too. Don't take everybody's advice. Especially when you're in a position of starting out, which is so vulnerable. And I think it can feel, um, you know, someone's, someone's telling you what to do or telling you a solution and you want to be like, oh, great, there it is. But to really, you know always think it through and not just jump for something because that piece of advice or that, that new idea is being handed to you, but, you know, really, uh, gut check it for yourself. 
Um, I've, I run into that a lot when someone says something, I'm like, that sounds really good. And then the next day I'm like, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. And thank God I didn't listen to it. So that's important. Um, I'd love to hear from each of you and, you know, no particular order, whoever wants to jump in, um, since we're almost to the end of this year, um, thinking to 2024, um, is there anything in particular, let me double check my question, you hope to accomplish next year in 2024? We're always trying to grow, 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 grow. We want more people to join Salon. Um, so, yeah, I want to bring in new members, new people to enjoy the collection we've built, more art on more in more people's homes, uh, more art, more, more, more. Um, I really am in like an internal team mode right now. I just hired three people and now I have a team of seven, which is the biggest I've ever thought I would be. Um, for the first year and a half, it was just me. And then my founding employee, Sarah, came um, afterwards. And, you know, in four short years to go from just one to seven, it's been crazy and has been a really beautiful blessing and a great journey. I think there's many um, different pieces of entrepreneurship and, you know, being a founder and building a business. And for me, being a boss and being a leader and having a team I think has been maybe my biggest reward and my biggest accomplishment. I think also having a team is one of the hardest things, transparently. It is so hard to deal with people as much as I love my girls and I really, really do. Everybody in my life knows that I take care of my team like they're my family. Um, but it's a, it's a major challenge too at the same time. And I think now having three new team members um, who bring us different visions and voices and personalities and perspectives is incredible. You know, my team is really eclectic, really far-reaching and diverse. We all speak multiple languages, have lived in different countries, have had tons of different jobs. And I think just figuring out um, the melding of our minds is kind of like, that's, that's really what I'm focused on, at least for the first six months of 2024, everybody's kind of in training um, now for the first kind of like three weeks before we break for the holidays. So yeah, just thinking about how it is that that happens and who's leading on what account and, you know, how the internal translates to the external. These are the things that um, I'm really concerned with next year. But, you know, we're working on some great projects that I'm really happy and hopeful about. But um, are, there I, any, whoa, oh. are there any you want to that you maybe can specifically mention that people can look out for? We just signed with Flag Art Foundation, a really amazing um, nonprofit gallery space in Chelsea that I've loved and admired for a long time. And they have a program that's um, really kind of institutional. They work on long, longer shows for um, like two to three months at a time, group shows with different artists. And um, I'm thrilled to be working with them. But I, I definitely believe that it starts with the team. So... Yeah. Mine is quite similar to Jordan's, which is for us definitely just continuing to grow, um, continuing to work with more great galleries, more great artists, and also to just kind of continue to build our messaging and expand our reach to more collectors as well. Um, it's a big question to like narrow down to one thing when especially I think, you know, I'm just operating day in, day out, um, as I'm sure a lot of us are. But if I were to kind of sum it up, I think for me, um, having founded my company officially um, a year and some change ago, about a year and a half ago, um, next year feels like 
the time where I can finally, um, not finally, everything's happening in, in exactly as it should in its own time. We don't want to rush things, but um, I think the, the values and my way of operating my ethos has been out there in the world for a period of time long enough that now, you know, things are starting to solidify in a way with various partners and people that want to collaborate, um, you know, on the program I'm doing or uh, collectors finding me who really share a similar value system and, um, you know, see me really being able to help their um, vision of collecting or first-time collectors who really want me to be able to um, support them in creating something. I I see those people in those places kind of coming more and more into my direct lens. And I'm really excited to um, continue to connect with, you know, anyone out there that um, kind of knows what I'm doing or here's, I am, a, <laughs> here's what I'm doing um, and sees the synchronicity and, you know, just wants to, to explore that together. So that's a really exciting point to be at. I think, you know, when you start a company at the beginning, it's kind of like, am I screaming into a void and no one knows what I'm doing? Um, and I, I can see the fruits of my labors starting to pay off in ways that I really think next year will will lock into place in an exciting moment. So um, if anyone has any questions at this point for anyone in particular or just a general question, um, we'd love to open it up to you all. Hi, ladies. Uh, wonderful talk. So I'm wondering, you all have different perspectives, all kind of orbiting the art world from different angles. And I'm wondering if each of you could share, or maybe there's one or two individuals that you would all agree on that are artists that are doing things that are really exciting um, that you've been following for some time or that they have projects coming up that you're really excited to, to see and either work on directly or just purely be a patron. Can I use this opportunity of my friend Emma walking up to call her out? <laughs> uh, not to call, not, everyone can look it up here. Don't put the attention on her. But um, I'll call out Emma Webster, who so serendipitously just walked up. Um, I've known Emma for at least four maybe years now, around there. And I visited her in her studio in Los Angeles, um, you know, years ago. And it was right before she had a really big solo show moment with Alexander Berggruen. Um, in New York City, and she was so enthusiastic about having me over. Um, hopefully, I can share that you are also like in the point in your creating the show process where you were basically living in your studio, um, just like so committed to what was going on. And in the years since, I've seen Emma go so many places and um, have been cheering her on all along. But not just because of that journey and and you know seeing her. Um, grow as such an amazing household name in our industry, but because of her practice of itself, which um, I'm a technology hater in a lot of ways. Sorry to my girls up here whose companies are very tech focused, but um, Emma has created a practice that I think can pull in a person like me who, you know, wants to see the paint on paper most of the time um, using VR in a way that um, creates these worlds and then the worlds come to life on the canvas via the materials. Um, that has like kind of changed my opinion on what technology can be used for to create art uh, in a tangible real world way. So thanks for giving me a, a very easy answer. <laughs> and if 
you guys want to comment on another artist that you're excited about? Yes, I'd love to. Um, I am obsessed with the practice of Mika Tajima. She's a Japanese-American artist um, based between California and New York. Uh, I'm going to talk about Mika because she was our second, salon's second acquisition. Um, She's got a big solo show coming up at Pace in New York in January. She's created a huge, large-scale loom, a jacquard weaving loom that she uses to weave these uh, these transmutions of audio recordings that she takes um, at sites all over the world that are that are really important to our development as humans. So for example, she'll take an audio recording at a nuclear fission facility and then she transmutes that and that audiograph gets woven into this stunning tapestry that looks like a painting, but it's not. And the materiality is incredible and I love her work so much. So I'm really excited to see that in January. Um, and then let's see, one of the other artists in our collection is a woman by the name of Hannah Herr. She's with Christina Kite Gallery. She was the very first acquisition we made at Salon. Um, she had her first solo. Her, she had her first group show at the Aspen Art Museum this year. She makes these really, really stunning um, grid-like, very process-oriented paintings that connect her with her ancestral spirits. They're very spiritual, very moving, and I sort of see her in the lineage of um, contemporary Korean minimalism. Love her work. So she's another younger artist I have my eye on. Um, I have so many artists that I'm always looking towards, but I think right now, this week, I've been thinking a lot about Camila Falquez, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. She's a Colombian photographer. Um, and I introduced her to my client, Hannah Traore, a couple years ago, who's had her gallery for two years, and she now officially represents Kami, and you know we're all kind of homies, but... Camila shoots trans communities in Latin America and has had this ongoing project for a couple years now. And it's so gorgeous and impactful. And she's been um, kind of getting more creative with framing and been incorporating different materials into her framing. So right now she's working with different ribbons and um, using ribbon to frame the work. And it's just stunning. And um, she has a solo booth with Hannah at NADA right now. And I'm happy to say that this week Pam collected one of the works for the um, annual PAM prize. They've been doing it with um, NADA in collaboration for the last eight years. Last year it went to Nina Johnson. So this year it's going to Camila and Hannah. Um, and that's been just amazing to see. It's so fun to collaborate with your friends and you know, see how an artist and a gallery can develop a relationship over years and land in the spot that they're at today. So I've been thinking a lot about Camila this week. Okay, I'm the last one and I'm just going to um, say, I, I probably am not going to mention a specific artist. I get so nervous because I have so many artist friends and always think I'm going to pick the pick one and everyone else to get mad at me. Um, but I will say that in even just hearing this, um, I would encourage everyone to not just look at the works, but also take the time to learn about the artist practices. Because in my mind, that's really what um, distinguishes kind of good art from great art and also what distinguishes the work that's worth kind of having in your own home, which is really taking the time to understand how the artist got to the point um, they were at, as well as their intentions behind the work. Um, yeah, and I, for me, that's always how I choose uh, the works that I find most powerful. I think that's a great point to end on. Um, one more question? Okay. And then we got to wrap it up. But if you have any other questions, we're going to be hanging around for a little bit. Come say hi. I don't know any of your names. I don't know <laughs> That's okay. what galleries or kind of 
businesses you guys have. I was captivated by the conversation on my way out. So I would love to get your names and the galleries you guys are, or your business names and uh, just kind of what you guys are up to for 2024. That was it. Thanks for coming. Thanks for stopping by. Um, I have to double check. Yeah, no one here is a gallery owner. I was like, are, are we? Um, but no, no, no. I just to just to clarify, um, we all kind of operate in different lanes in the art world and have created each our own business. My name is Maria Vogel. Um, I'm an art advisor and I have an art advisory called Rococo Art Advisory that um, in addition to supporting um, people in purchasing artwork, I've been hosting a suite of programming as well to um, create moments where artists and the people who love them, no matter if they're able to purchase the work or they are just a huge fan, can connect. Um, so that's what I do. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad you got captivated. This is exactly what we wanted to happen. <laughs> I'm Jordan. I'm curatorial lead at Artsy, which is the online marketplace for buying and selling art. And I also started a company, Salon, which is a member-managed art fund. We're a group of private collectors who are together building uh, a communally-owned collection. And the works that we own are geographically dispersed in the homes of our investors. My name is Hannah, um, and I run a PR agency called Alma. And we work with a lot of different casts of characters in the art world, artists, galleries, museums, book projects, things like that. And my name is Charlie Jarvis, and I'm the founder of a company called Fairchain, which is a tech platform that supports artists in managing um, ownership of their works. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.